listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Thanks for joining us for Grow, our first series of 2017. All right, Real Life, how are we doing? Good. Hey, I'm Paul. I am the Moscow Student Ministries coach here at Real Life. Glad to be with you. We got a lot to talk about, so let's just jump right in. Uh, a few weeks ago, we threw up this chart. And we were talking about spiritual maturity with this chart. It's going to come here any second. You just watch. There it is. And uh, what Aaron did is he graphed the verse, love, uh, the idea of loving God and loving people. Uh, we had this idea that if, if the entire Old Testament is summarized with these two commands, to love God and to love others, then our entire walk as believers, as disciples of Christ, should be encompassed by those two things. And what we realized is that you could hypothetically love God without loving people, which if you're a Bible nerd, you're freaking out because First John, I know, just hold on. Uh, you could also hypothetically love people without loving God. And so what we decided to do is create this XY axis uh, and kind of put them in, per, in a perpendicular aspect. And this becomes a good tool then for us to consider that our actions shouldn't be one or the other, but, but rather they should pull us into the middle. And what we, I think what we end up discovering as we continue in this life is that to love God has always meant to love people. That when I pray to God, when I practice that discipline, I'm not just praying for myself, I'm praying for others. I'm actively seeking their best interest in life. I'm praying that I can become a better person, a better father, a better husband, a better employee, a better employer. What we find is that as we progress in our maturity spiritually, that these two concepts of loving God and loving others starts to merge into one. My spiritual disciplines are no longer just a me thing, it's an us thing. And for me to be a better us, I need to do my spiritual disciplines. Uh, they work in tandem. So we've broken up uh, this graph into three parts. We talked about what God's part is in this whole spiritual maturity thing. And there's some things only God can do. And the invitation to us then is that we would trust him. We would trust that God is actively working in our world, both large and small. That he's aware, that he's good, that he's working in other people's lives. Now we, we have to trust that God will do his job and we have to let him do it. We can't take it over. Which is harder to say, it's harder to do than to say. We also talked about last week their part how we spend so much energy concerned with our image and how people perceive us and what other people are doing and what other people are thinking. Like we are so consumed in today's society about measuring up and having others measure up. We are quick to judge their value. We'll look at where someone is in their point in life and we'll SMH, shake, shake my head. If you're, that's cool lingo. Um, We'll shake our heads at them, like forgetting, by the way, that we ourselves were at a moment in the past, at a point in our life, at a not healthy place. And we refuse to give this person in this location the same grace and mercy and opportunity that we had in the past. However, as we left last week's message, I am sure that there are some of you who were, who were left wondering, what's the point then? What can I do? Like, if I can't judge, and I can't talk, and I can't, like, you know, convict, like, what, what do I do then? Am I, am I just a doormat? Am I just a hippy-dippy, lovey-dovey person that doesn't do anything? Like, how do I engage with people then? Like, what's, what, what do I do? Well, lucky for you, we have a whole sermon about that. 
So today we're going to be looking at three parables that Jesus taught, and we're going to be looking at through the lenses of what is our part in this world. So before we get there, I want you to repeat after me. This sermon is about me, me. not them. them. Good job. You have a tendency, and I know you do because you're like me, to hear a sermon and go, man, that was good. They should hear this. No, stop it. It's today is not about them. Oh, who else needs to hear? It's about you, and it's about me. So if you ever find yourself doing that, just slap yourself, pinch yourself, whatever, which means I should hear a lot of slaps. Like, uh, do whatever you have to, to pull yourself back in. This is about you. So let's go to the first sermon. First sermon. <laughs> There's three sermons today. I hope you brought your lunches. Matthew 25. For it will be like a man going on a journey. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. To each according to his ability. Uh, Just in case you don't know, a talent is a large sum of gold. And you could Google it how much it's worth. It's a lot of money. So the servant, the the master takes his entire property. It seems like he liquidates it and gives it in a form of money to his servants. He entrusts everything he has to them. And each according to his ability. So hold on to that because we'll come back. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. And he, who, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, I want to stop here. What image do you get of this master? Is he a cruel, overbearing, harsh, judgmental master where you can never do good enough? We really don't get that here. Like, first off, this master entrusts his entire property to these three servants. And then he goes away for a long time, assuming that when he comes back, they haven't ran away with his money, which they could have. Even the last servant could have. Instead, he comes back knowing that, knowing that they trust him and he trusts them. And when they do a good job, he, he says incredibly, nice, I mean, I would love if Aaron said this to me. Like, I would love if I come in Monday morning and Aaron's like, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Actually, that would be a little creepy. Um, but like, he says incredibly kind things. All right, let's keep going. And he also, who had the two towns, came forward saying... Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You had been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, we often assume that this is exactly what they should have been doing. Like They, they should have been investing. And, and, and I want to challenge that here in a minute. Because uh, there, no, there is no command he gives them to go invest and make more. He just sets them over it to be responsible for it. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew, that you, I knew you to be a hard man, 
reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. This is a question. Like, this is your assumption? This is what you thought? If that's the case, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. You could have done the exact same thing. Walk down the street with my money, and instead of digging a hole, put it in the bank. And then walked away. Like, this master's expectations weren't that high. Like, this was the bar. This is all you had to do. But instead, you used the same amount of effort to instead take the things I gave you and you put it in the ground. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, into that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yay. Um, I want to go back to the beginning. When the master gives to the one servant five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability. And we like to pick on the last one, but think about the the one who, who got two talents. Like, he could have easily looked at the guy who got the five talents and said, why does he get five? Do you not trust me? You do not think I'm good enough? Like, he could have easily had that attitude. He could have easily done the same thing the one guy did. He could have seen what he did and go, hey, that's not a bad idea. But he instead, he instead does something with it. My master has given me something to do something with. And he goes and he does something and really, in our society, we are quick to compare ourselves, our stories to other people's stories. We are quick to whine and complain. And listen, there are some five-talent people, and they're annoying. Like, they can do anything. Whatever they want to do, they can accomplish. Like, it, they just, they, they stink. You know, you know who I'm talking about, unless you're one of those, and then I hate you in a Christian way. Um, but we know, like... There are some people that way, and guess what? God made them that way, and you can't, you are not God. We have to trust him in his part. There are some other people that are the two-talent people, and they, they can do some things, not everything, they can do some things. And then there are other one-talent people, and I, I, I know some of these people, and they do their one-talent incredibly well, and with passion, and they are amazing, and they make a huge impact in the world. Our job is not to compare ourselves with other people. Our job is not to make excuses. Our job is not to whine and complain about the circumstances of my life. But instead, our job, your job, is to take what you've been given and go do something. This is why righteousness matters. This is why purity matters. This is why sin has such devastating consequences. Because it weighs us down and and makes us into something we are not. Out of fear, we take our talents and we bury them. We need to be the best version of who we are. We need to study scripture. We need to memorize scripture. And I'm not saying like you need to have a chapter verse reference and like you just memorize. You can memorize your phone number. You can memorize a few Bible verses. You can memorize a Taylor Swift song, which gives you so much 
edification in life, you can memorize a few verses from Scripture. Like, this is why those things matter. This is why community matters, because other people help me be better. This is why you should be the best employer or the best employee possible, the best husband or the best wife, the best single person, the best friend. Like, be the best of who you are in what God has given you, nothing more and nothing less, and go do something. This leads into our second parable, Luke 16, which I love this parable. This is so good. Um, He also said to the disciples, Jesus, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. So this boss hears that his manager is doing sketchy things with his money, wasting it. And he called him and said to him, what is that I hear about you? Turn in your, turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. So like, you put yourself in the manager's position. It's like, oh, snap. Like, it just got real. So the manager wants to see his books because he's going to find out what he's been doing. And the manager's going to come back expecting the books. But he, this is what the manager does in the meantime. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do. So that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. The manager said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Like he just cut this guy's bill in half. He owed this money and now half of it's gone. How many of us in debt would love that? Then he said to another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended this this honest manager for his shrewdness. That phrase makes no sense. How many of you, if you had a financial manager and all of your finances were entrusted to them and you found out that they were using your money for sketchy things, and you're like, you know what? That's enough. I need to see my books. You come back a few hours later and you're looking at the books and you get to the end and you see that your financial advisor has just reallocated your money and your debts to other people so that way he can come out of this benefiting. How many of you would be like, that boy, <laughs> good job. It makes no sense. And this is what Jesus is setting up. He says this. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. We will, like, we're, we're quick to attack Wall Street and corporations and the corruption of politics and blah, blah, blah. And I don't say any of that's wrong. But what Jesus just did is he said, those things that you blame them for doing, you should be doing yourself. So hold on with me for a second. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful, to tie it back to the last parable, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. 
If you then have been, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteousness wealth, in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve money. You cannot serve God and it says money here, prosperity. You can't. This reminds me of one of my favorite sayings of Jesus. Um, when Jesus says, you should be wise as a serpent and gentle as a dove. We, we love this phrase. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's great. We don't realize how shocking the statement is. Tell me of the only other place that you know of where there was a wise serpent. What's his name? Jesus just told you to be the devil. Like, this is shocking. Like, hey, remember that guy back in, like, Genesis somewhere? And, like, God's perfect creation, everything's cool and legit. And, like, this serpent shows up and starts questioning and saying just the right thing at the right time, causing people to doubt. And he starts to shift and manipulate. And from there on out, the rest is history. Remember that guy? You should be like him. With the exception that you're innocent as a dove. You should manipulate not from deceit and self-interest, but from truth and for the love of other people. You should plan and scheme and figure out, like when you meet someone and they, they're just hard against God and like they've been burned by the church, you should get a little, little smile and a little glint because you're going you're gonna to work on this. You got plans now. You got a project. Like we should be like that. Like, we should have intentions for people. We should be intentional about this walk with Christ. We will spend so much time and energy and money and our schedule on our career, on our, uh, on our appearance, on our health, on our family, on our hobbies. Like, we will spend so much on that. And Jesus invites us to do the same with others and with his kingdom. Are you willing to be intentional with your schedule, with your relationships, with your resources and your connections? Are you, are you willing to have a plan and to try to, and try to do something? Not just short term, not just reactionary, but to be proactive in this life. To see a problem and say, I don't know if I can do anything. I don't know if I can change anything, but I'm going to try and to go for it. Like for our businesses, we'll have business plans and we'll do research and we'll hire the right people. Like we'll have that. Are you willing to do that same thing in your life when it comes to you being a disciple of Christ? We need to be not just the best versions of ourselves, but we need to be intentional in this world. We need to get at it. Get some plans, get something done, research, talk. Like dude, let's do something. We need to be intentional. And then the third parable. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And this is how I picture him saying it. Like, with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. 
Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Because he assumed that there are some people that are his neighbor and some people that are not. And Jesus doesn't answer. He tells a story because Jesus is cool. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came down to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Like, okay, last night was not a fun night for me. Uh, my, car, my car battery's dead, my van ran out of gas, I got it stuck. It was a, not a fun night, okay? Uh, but when I got stuck, I was in the middle of this alley, and I'm trying to get it out, and it's just blah. Two trucks, not one, but two trucks drove by. This is an alley, there's not a lot of room. They have to go around my van. And like, they can see that like, I was mad. Like, I, I, I'm, don't judge me, I punched the car. Like, and I know none of you have ever done that. Like, I was livid. I was, and it wasn't just, it was like all the things leading up to this moment. But let's be honest, how many times do we pass people by? When we see a Facebook status of someone who's obviously pleading for help, and instead what we do is we either keep scrolling or go, man, there's such a drama queen or king, or I don't know what the phrase is now. Like, how often do we do that? How often do we see someone that we know needs help, and maybe they're not even crying out for it, because maybe they can't, because they're half dead. And do we just walk by the other side? And then Jesus throws a huge plot twist in this, but a Samaritan. Now, we don't understand what this would do to the audience. Scratch the word Samaritan out and fill in whatever person you would hate to help you. What person would challenge you the most if if you saw them coming to help you? Would you run? Would you say, no, I'm good? Maybe it's Republican or Democrat. Maybe it's a Muslim. Maybe it's a homosexual. Maybe it's a family member, an ex-spouse, a parent. Who is it that you would hate for them to help you? As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine that belonged to him. Then he, sent, then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn. Like, pay attention to everything he is doing. He doesn't just see him have compassion. He goes to him. He binds his wounds. He takes his own oil and wine and uses it. He puts him on his own animal. Now he has to walk the distance. And he brought him to an inn, and then he spends the night with him taking care of him. Like, he could have gone to Jerusalem and just left him there. And I wouldn't blame him, would you? Like, if you are a Samaritan and you know how much the Jews hate you, would you ever go there? Especially with a half-dead Jew on your animal. That doesn't look sketch. But he doesn't. And the next day, he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Like, he doesn't just pay for the night and hopefully, you know, and, and then just kind of leave him. Like, you know, rest well, buddy. Hope you figure this out. No, he, pay, he pays the innkeeper. Take, take care of him. If you spend anything else, let me know and I'll, I got it covered. Because I'm coming back to check on him. 
My, my part in this man's life isn't done yet. Look at what this man does. He opens up his schedule. He opens up his life. He opens up his safety because he's going to go to Jerusalem. He opens, he opens up his wallet. And I think this is what loving your neighbor means. More importantly, he opens, he opens up his worldview his thoughts and beliefs. I'm not saying they're wrong or right. I'm not saying any of that. But he makes a space in his life and in his heart for this person to serve him and take care of him. Now, you and I will often say things like, I'm too busy or I don't have enough money. It, tr- truthfully, we, we do have enough time and we do have enough money. Like we do. Like if, if your water heater goes out or your basement floods, guess what, guess what you magically make in your schedule? Time. Because you have to deal with it. Because it matters. Like you will make time. You will make space for the things that matter for you and then the things that inconvenience you. Jesus asks us, will you do the same for others? Will you make time for others? Both pre-planned, like will you make time in advance because that's what you do. If you have friends, you make time for them. Like, you, like, hey, we need to get together. Like, hey, man, it's been too long. What are you doing Friday? You need to come over. You make, you make time for your spouse and for your kids, hopefully. You make time for your care group. You make time for those planned uh, uh, relational environments. But you also make time for the things that matter in your life that pop up out of nowhere. Whether it's an opportunity or an inconvenience, you will make time. Will you do that also for others? Will you? Which of these three, Jesus says, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And I could see the lawyer. Like, no, the, picture the lawyer. He's a lawyer, he knows he's cornered. Like, Jesus just whooped him. The one who showed him mercy. Like, he, he doesn't even see some, he isn't even willing to say Samaritan. And Jesus said to him, I could see with a little grin, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. Our, our society, I don't know if you know this, has a problem with the word love. We don't know what it means. And before you're quick to judge the other people, stop and slap yourself. This is about you. And there's a good chance you're one of these two opposites. You might be the person who says that love is all about acceptance. And I'm not saying love doesn't have anything to do with acceptance. But this type of love in this society is effectiveness. Because what, and, and it's also self-contradictory. Because what we really mean is you have to be accepting of this. If you're not accepting of this, then we don't accept you. Like, it self-contradicts itself. This type of love also means I can't have those hard conversations with people because I just have to accept them. I just, I just have to love them. And if, if you're like, yeah, yeah, Paul, okay. On this other side, we're quick to judge, we're quick to blame, we're quick to point out, we're quick to talk about the truth, and really, we're doing the same thing they did, we've just flipped it. Jesus invites us to stop doing either of these and said, make some space for people. And what you'll find is that the love and the truth will meet. If you are willing to allow for God to orchestrate moments for you, powerful things will happen. And love and truth will collide and it'll be an amazing thing.
When we were talking early on about the sermon series about God's part, my part, and their part, I couldn't help but to think of Ephesians 2. So let's go ahead and jump to it. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that the coming in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It doesn't matter if you're the five, the two, or the one. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. The Greek word's poema. It's the word we get poem from. Created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Which God prepared beforehand that you would walk in them. And I love this image. God is always doing his part. He's actively at work in this world, in your life. He knows what your schedule is. He knows what your finances are. He knows what your worldview is. He knows what, your, what connections you have and what abilities you have. And he is actively at work preparing every footstep you take because there is a bunch of good that needs to be done. And we need to make space for him and for others both planned and also in the moment unplanned. It could be something as simple when your wife's van gets stuck in the backyard and you spend time trying to get it out and this random neighbor walks by in PJs and Converse in snow. He's like, hey, you need a push? And you're like, yeah. And 45 minutes later, you finally get the van out and he is soaked. And I look at him, I'm like, you need to come inside so I can give you a drink. And we talk for two, three hours and he shares with me about how he's been burned by religion. And him and I have very different views. And we talk about him. We talk about politics. We talk about religion. And guess what? I had him over for dinner the next night and he loved it. He told me he forgot what it's like to be part of a family. Like God was working in Danny's life. God dumped the snow in our driveway and made it slosh and made sure that we had a crappy van with crappy traction that night. And he had Danny look out his back window and see my wife standing on the side because I'm too stubborn to let her help and I'm just trying to get it out and I'm just, I'm hitting the gas more and I'm doing whatever I can. He saw that, he saw us, he had compassion on us and he walks over and he helps and we have a meal together later. Like it's those smallest of moments. Are you willing to open your eyes and to see to allow God to do his part, to allow, God, to allow others to do their part, and then you just enter in because God has already prepared everything in advance. You just simply need to let the magic happen. Listen, an unexpected act with an unexpected word can have extraordinary outcomes. Like you are one moment, one phrase, one deed from dramatically changing someone's life. And it's amazing what God can do. And like you step back and you're just like, dude, whoa. Listen, this is hard work. Like this is hard. Like we're not giving you a formula, a step-by-step. We're not giving you, "This this is what you do in this situation, but don't do this in this situation. Like we're not giving that to you. We're 
because we can't. Because there's always exceptions and there's always grays. Like, yes, there's absolutely black and whites, and the black and whites, they tether us down to reality. And they, they give us something to work with when we enter into the murky world, when we enter into a situation and we have no idea what to do. But I promise you, I promise you, if you are willing to become the best version of yourself, to deal with your insecurities, your addictions, your pride, your anger, your selfishness, your sin, your fear, if you're, willing to, if you're willing to invest into yourself and allow others to invest into you, if you are willing, if you are willing to be intentional and to plan and to, yes, even manipulate, not for yourself and not from deceit, but you are going to take your hands, which is what the word comes from, and you are going to apply yourself to the world and to others. And you're going to be the best person you can to come alongside people and help them the best possible way. And if you are willing to make space for them, and for God, you will find that God shows up as well as they do. And you have the complete honor of just being a part of it. We're going to work our way towards communion now. So if you're serving communion, please go ahead and head on back. We have an open table here at Real Life. And so what that means is if you are new with us, uh, anyone can come and celebrate the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, you, you are family. We ask that you would hold the elements until the end, though. That way, as one family, we could take it together, and so we could also wrestle with some implications. And these are pretty simple implications. Uh, everything I've already said. Number one, our job is to be the best version of ourselves. That's our job. Which means you need to get past yourself. You need to stop blaming your environment, your situation, your upbringing, your whatever, your whatever, your whatever. You have, to stop be, you have to stop complaining that you only have one talent when someone else has five or that I have given so many talents, I don't know what to do. Like you have to, you have to stop that. Just be the best version of you. Number two, our job is to be intentional. To, the same way we're intentional with our jobs and our finances and our career and our investments and our education and our health, not me so much recently, but the same way that we're intentional in all those, we need to be intentional when it comes to walking this path with God, when it comes to loving God and loving people. Number three, our job is to make room for God and for people. And hopefully, the two spaces merge. Hopefully, when we make room for others and we make room for God, they end up meeting in the same room. And let me tell you, it's cool when it happens. And lastly, the how is just as important as the what. Um, how you say something will matter just as much as what you say. How you do something will matter just as much as what you did. You, you have to have both. You have to. And I don't know if you noticed, but Facebook is full of contention right now. And people are calling other people names, calling the past or the current president names. Stop. Listen, have a political opinion. Be active in politics. That's not what I'm saying. But how you do it matters. Do you do it with love? Do you do it judgmentally? How you do it and how you have the conversation matters just as much as what the conversation is. So we come to a table every week where we are reminded about what this looks like.
about a God who becomes man, about a God who shows us what the best looks like, how to walk this out, how to be intentional with people, how to make space for God and for others. And at this meal, he says, I give you a new commandment to love one another as I have loved you. And so we hold in our hands what that love that he had for us looked like. And we're invited to do the same for others. So on the night that Jesus betrayed, he took the bread saying, take and eat. This is my body. So whenever we do this, we remember. Let's remember. Then he took the cup saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. And whenever we drink this, we remember the covenant. Let's remember. Father, I want to thank you for your goodness. That you are actively at work in everyone's life all over the world. And that you are doing only what you can do. And you wish to prove yourself faithful to us. Help us to just do our part. Not to whine or compare or blame or shift or just be comfortable with our own life and our own musings. Help us instead to be active in this world, active with you, to become the best version of ourselves, to deal with the stuff that we're dealing with and not be ashamed of it, but to bring it out into the light and not be afraid. And help us to make space for you and for others. Pray all these things in your name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.